Hello and welcome to the Ties Fundamental Value Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. Uh, on today's episode, I'm super excited to be joined by not only one of the smartest uh, and deepest down the rabbit hole people I know, but also a good friend, uh, Hassan Basiri, who's VP of Portfolio Management at Arca. Uh, Hassan, it's so great to have you on. What's up, Josh? Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And so before we even get in, get into it, quick disclaimer, nothing here is an investment advice. Don't listen to me and don't listen to Hassan. Um, definitely don't listen to me. And uh, definitely don't listen to Hassan. I did. Uh, it was a bad idea. No, I'm just messing. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, there's show notes for complete disclosures kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so let's go right into it. And so the way that we like to start with all of our guests is, you know, life pre-crypto. Um, you know, you're a, you're a lawyer, you know, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I uh, I was uh, before crypto. I was an attorney. I went to uh, law school at Northwestern, and then started working in New York uh, for uh, a big four accounting for firm called KPMG. So I was doing like cross border M and A for them. <clears throat> Basically, if you wanted to buy or sell a U.S. company, if you were a foreign company or vice versa. So I mean, I did that for like eight years. I'm, I'm much older than I look. And uh, after those eight years, I, I finally was able to free free myself from the legal career and, and jumped into crypto. And so when, when, when did you start falling down the rabbit hole? Because I assume it was before you left KPMG. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was buying like in 2013, I was like buying Bitcoin for like four or five bucks um, because I was actually like, my brother was like, we were sitting in a poker game in like Louisiana. I'll never forget this. So my brother goes, have you seen this like magic internet money that drug dealers are using? And I was like, no. And what are you talking about? And essentially uh, he was like, yeah, like, you know, all the normal memes, like pseudo anonymous, you can send it in an hour. Uh, and like, he was also saying at the time, he's like, it's theoretically not traceable and which is obviously incorrect. But the point is, is he kind of like sparked my interest when he told me about it and I started going down the rabbit hole, read about Silk Road, like the Vice article or um, not the Vice, the Verb article where they just talked about Silk Road. And I just checked it out. And honestly, like I wasn't even messing around on Silk Road, but like I like obviously went to the site, checked it out and then just fell down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and read the white paper. And then like, honestly, never looked back. I mean, obviously I lived through a few crashes and stuff, but I ever since 2013, like, and well before I joined the space professionally in like mid to late 2019, like I never really, uh, I, I never really left. I mean, I obviously wasn't trading as much in 2017 because I was just a, kind of a Bitcoin guy because I wasn't as involved, but I was always following Bitcoin. So it was interesting. I got, I lost some money in Gox because um, that was the only way you'd get paid back then. So yeah, just pretty typical to be honest. And, and so did you hold through 2013 or did you sell at times? Did you come back? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, a tra I'm a, you know, I'm a PM trader. So like, I'm, I'm always trying to get in and out. Like, I mean, in, in the beginning, like I remember like the first time I bought it in 2013, I literally bought it for like three or four bucks. Like, and this is like, I think more or less right when Coinbase started. Um, and I bought it for three and the next day it was like at 45 and I sold like half and thought I was a genius. <clears throat> and then the next day I was like back down to 10. So it was just one of those things where, you know, you, you kind of like, you get used to the volatility. Um, and I honestly believe that like me, my experience uh, just being in this, like trading it and like owning it for a long time and losing a bunch of money and in, uh, in the Gox thing and, and 
uh, situations like that have kind of trained me to accept volatility and size positions correctly. Like I'm just used to, I'm used to rug pulls and you try to like avoid those and look at there. So it's like, uh, you know, you get hardened after many years of rug pulls. So was your first purchase on Mount Gox or? No, I think it was, I was a Coinbase guy. Got it. So you started right when Coinbase got yeah. off the ground. So did you do any peer to peer or anything back in the day? Or? I did, yeah, I used to when I was in when I was in Chicago uh, for school. I did like a uh, local bitcoins. Like I, I met some guy. Like gave him cash in an envelope and he like transferred it to my account. We like sat there and like uh, bullshitted for like an hour. Uh, and it was like in February. It was freezing. But like I didn't know what else to do. Like I mean, people were telling me like they used to send like moneygrams to random accounts and then have the Bitcoin show up like three days later. Like, it's just insane, like how people used to trade this thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I originally was doing a peer to peer. Um, and obviously that's a not a great, it's not a scalable solution, right? So, um, but if you were doing it with $2,000 in 2013, it scaled very yeah, well for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I did. Like, I, there's very few and far between people that like, just bought their first bag and just like held throughout. Like generally, like the people that you you see that like are like whales and have like hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of Bitcoin and just held, there a lot of them like forgot about it or they just bought it and didn't even know and they threw it in a hard drive somewhere and they they woke up and it was like a twenty thousand and then went down and they bought more. You know what I mean? It's not like generally if it, if it's a big deal, like if the money is a big deal to you. And you bought a huge slug early, you probably yeah, you trimmed. Yeah. But like if you if you bought so much and the money wasn't a big deal and you just held, like obviously you minted. So it's like uh, it's really it's interesting. Like that's why I love crypto because it really it shows you how important uh how people value money personally, because everyone takes a different look at it, right? Like if it's a big deal to you, you'll just ride through the wave, or you won't probably won't ride through the waves. But if it's not, you, you know, you'll hold. Interesting. And so, you know, I mean, being being in the space that early, you probably were, you know, remember, you know, Pure Coin and Bitcoin Green and you know all the other, you know, Feather Coin, and all the all the total nonsense. I mean, if you if if anybody wants to go back, you can go to like I think Coin Market Cap has like a way back machine or historical lookup, and just go like random date in 2015 and go look at the coins that were there. You know, you had, you had Bitcoin, you actually had Ripple um, and uh, Litecoin and you had a bunch of other nonsense. So did you ever, you know, Nova coin, feather coin, pure coin, did you ever dabble in any of that stuff? Nah, you know what I, you know what, like, because I wasn't in the space full time before uh, 2018, 2019, like I really just held Bitcoin. And to be honest, like, during the ICO craze of 2017, um, I just straight up, like I missed it. Cause like, I wasn't, I wasn't like as active. I wasn't as into the space. I didn't know what was going on with ETH and, you know, like with the, uh, the parody bug and the new ICO, I just wasn't as, and then I would see all these things go up, like all these names that you mentioned go up like dragon coin. Do you remember that one? And I just had no clue. Like I was naive back then and I probably could have made some multiples but I basically just like bought and held Bitcoin. Uh, wrote it did, up you, uh, did you claim your Bitcoin cash fork back in the day and your Bitcoin yeah, gold yeah, fork? Yeah, I did all that. And that, yeah, exactly. Like I did all that, sold it immediately. Um, I still yeah. remember when Bitcoin cash ran up close to like two grand back in 2017. It's insane. Like if you think about like um, Bcash and BSV, 
like a lot of the BSV hasn't even moved. Like no one's even it's unclaimed. There. Yeah, it's yeah. unclaimed, and like that tells you that like two, one of two things, right? Either they don't care, or they don't know, or and it also tells you that you shouldn't short BSV because the the concentration of it's like a lot tighter. Uh, the ownership concentration is a lot tighter, so they can probably print any price they want. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like one of those things where it's like, yeah, I, I can't mess with that. Like, I, I but I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist by any means. Like, I think um, there's a lot of tokens which are, you know, they look exactly like quasi equities where they're paying you some type of uh, dividend payment or you're earning some type of yield with the coin. Um, so like, I mean, I own in the PA, uh, which I've always held before ARCA, that's a disclosure I have to make. I'm, I'm a big OV guy, um, own, own a lot of sushi, uh, and I've obviously cleared all this with, with, uh, my management team, but like, yeah, big OV, big sushi, um, and Bitcoin and ETH guy, like you gotta have ETH, man. It's like, and big Binance guy, you know, you, you need to be messing around on a pancake swap. So yeah, BNB, FTT, OV. Sushi and uh, Bitcoin, and um, so let's let's get into that. So, how did you actually end up leaving KPMG and joining Arca? I mean, when you you were one of the first employees at Arca. I mean, they were. I mean, Arca's because you know is is one of the preeminent you know crypto hedge funds at this point. But when you first started, it it wasn't. And so, how do you how do you find Arca? How do you how do you decide you wanted to become a portfolio manager in crypto? Like. You know what? What drove you to to leave? You know, I mean, you had a law degree, and then you went and joined a small, you know, fun startup, yeah. right? Like, how do you? Yeah, you know, my, and, parents, uh, my parents. My uh, parents were not impressed. I'm assuming we're not impressed. They just <laughs> they recently forgave me um, <laughs> when I told them my bonus. But like, oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, basically, look. So I was, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of cross border M and A, KPMG. All my clients were private equity guys, and. Um, I would like look through a lot of their models and valuation stuff to like see how they're valuing their porcos. And I just became really interested in that stuff and like the valuation and the, and the financial analysis. So I became a CFA uh, in like 18 months while I was at KPMG just to kind of, I thought it would maybe like help my, help my craft, my legal craft in like a little better in the sense that like I would understand the financials, be able to go through the financial statements and stuff. So uh, it ended up not really applying, but what it did do is like, I was able to like, uh, like kind of get some interviews at asset management companies. And one of the asset management companies I interviewed with was Guggenheim uh, in like 2016-ish. So while I was at Guggenheim interviewing, um, the guy I interviewed with was one of the early uh, like founders of Arca. Um, and so he, like, after the interview, he was like, look, I can't hire you. You don't have any experience, but let's stay in touch. So, um, after I, I interviewed him and like, after he said no job for me, two years later, I saw that he was like starting Arca, uh, with a few of the founders. So I reached out to him or he, I'm sorry, he reached out to me and said, Hey, we're, we're launching this fund. Are you still into crypto? Because he asked me during the interview, pitch me a long idea and uh, off the run long idea and I pitched him Bitcoin. And his, re- his response was, I think it's interesting, but like, I can't, I can't pitch that here, I would get fired. Like, I, like there's just too much career risk. Uh, and at the time, you know, Bitcoin was not, I, I don't even remember the price, you know, it was 2015, 2016. So it hadn't had its like parabolic. Yeah, 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 probably around a thousand bucks. And so, you know, he, he, and he knew I was into it. So like when, when he launched the company or founded the company, he reached out to me. 
And so I came and I interviewed with, with him and, and Rain and, and Jeff and Katie. And uh, we, he was like, hey, man, I want to do something with you. Like, you know, we're happy to extend an offer. And I was like, cool. He extends the offer. I accept. And then a week later, he's like, yeah, I'm leaving the company. <laughs> so, I mean, after that, um, I, you know, but like I had a good feeling about Rain, our CEO, our C, uh, president and CEO. I had a good feeling about Jeff, our CIO. I hit, I hit it off with Katie right away. You know, she's our head of research. And like, I was just ready to leave law. I paid off all my student loans. I was ready to take a swing. And like, I honestly have never been happier in the space. Like I just look at the talent that's coming in. Like we're interviewing kids that are like Yale MBA, Yale MBAs now, or went to Harvard undergrad. And do you think, do you think you would have gotten a job if you interviewed now with your KPMG resume? <laughs> no, quite, quite honestly. No, like I, I, like I'm a really honest person. Like I have to be in this. I mean, space. I'm with you. I mean, I started my company when I first started it. If I was interviewing today with the amount of experience I had in my knowledge of crypto, there was no chance I would have gotten a job. No shot. No shot. Like, like, look, you, you'll take a look at someone's like, I, I, I thought we're looking for people right now. So if you're listening to this podcast and you want to be a, uh, analyst for us, like DM me a resume and a one pager on DeFi. But after that, um, and your degen score too. And your degen score. Degen score is very important. Like if it's not at least a Chad, we're not, you're not even in the application. <laughs> Um, but no, seriously, like the, the, the level of talent flowing into the space is really impressive. And it's not just like the finance bros, right? It's, uh, the computer scientists who have like finance during comp sci and finance. Um, it's the, it, it's the traditional finance people with like knowledge of like trading systems and risk management and things like that. So I'm, I'm pretty impressed with just the quality of, of talent flowing into the space. And yeah, objectively, could I have gotten the job two years ago or two and a half years ago at this point with, with my KPMG resume and limited crypto experience? No, no. Like, I mean, I could trade options. I still do that sometimes, but like generally no. I, I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate and I'm very happy to be here. And I'm, and I'm bold up on the space, bro. Like I want the space to succeed. I don't believe in quick money. I believe in like, I'm, I'm long-term greedy. I'm not short-term greedy. So I want the space to grow. I want the TAM to grow. And I want it to be $10 trillion asset class in three, four years. And so, yeah, can you tell us, you know, what ARCA is um, and what makes it different from other funds in the space? Yeah, absolutely. ARCA is a uh, long biased, uh, you know, hedge fund. Uh, we have a VC slice in the hedge fund. So basically we have a liquid VC slice. So basically for every $100, 15% is in longer term VC style bets the other 85% is split between four buckets of risk, uh, market beta, you know, things like Bitcoin ETH, catalysts or event trades. So things like mainnet launches, developer software upgrades, events, IDOs, IEOs, things like that. Um, arbitrage, so like long short or, um, you know, things that are undervalued based on price to book. And, and then the fourth is derivatives and options. Um, so yeah, we, we typically use derivatives and options as uh, portfolio construction overlay. And what I mean by that is we don't use leverage on futures. Uh, that's why we don't, we don't short and we don't use leverage on futures. We don't short unless it's paired with a long, um, and we don't short futures just because we think the entire space is one long call option. There's no reason to short unless it's like hedged out. Um, 
So the reason that we're different from other funds is one, we don't use leverage if it's not puts or calls, right? I, I get my I get my deltas and more beta using calls, uh, and I reduce it using puts. And uh, we also take a fundamental approach to the space. I know everyone thinks the space is memes and hype and marketing, and that's certainly true to a certain extent. That's I'm not like trying to lie, and that that definitely factors into our analysis. But we do try to take a fundamental uh, valuation approach using like transactional comps. Like so, for instance, like there's an idea, there's an oxy IEO on the 11th, and it'll list on the 16th, and based on other IEOs that FTX has done, the BitMEX has done, the Gates done, I have an idea of what it should trade at based on what like what sector the IEO is in. So it's like a lend, borrow, decentralized brokerage. So I already have an idea of, I know it's coming at 15 cents. I, I know what, what other IEOs came at 15 cents for lend, borrow protocols. And, uh, you know, I'll get into the Discord, I'll ask my questions about circulating supply and stuff, and I'll come up with a number that makes sense based on transactional comps and transactional or in comp, uh, comparison protocols. So, you know, there's a lot of fundamental analysis. There's, there's a lot of like intrinsic stuff that we do. Um, obviously, we look at like- And, and how much of that matters in the short term versus the long term? Totally fair. Totally fair. So like- if it's a tra- if it's like a if it's a catalyst trade, which I would think this falls into that bucket of risk that we do, I have basically a price target, an entry and an exit point, uh, a capital at risk number, how much I'm willing to lose, where my stop loss is, and uh, like an upside price target. So, so you like, plan you plan the entire trade beforehand. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's like based on like look, if I think I'm just making up these numbers, like, but if I think it's going to come at 15 cents. Uh, and obviously all the bots are going to get it before me. So I'm lucky. I'll be lucky to get it at 50 cents. And if I think I can get a buck out of it, but my, so I'm buying it at 50, my sell is a dollar and do I, my stop loss is like, I don't know, 25 cents. So that's two to one risk reward. Right. And based on a two to one risk reward and a one day time hold or three or four or five day time period of holding, like how, what is the appropriate amount of risk to put on that? Um, and I have, we have like an internal proprietary risk model that measures like volatility, liquidity, fundamental view, catalysts, and I'll put scores for all these. And the risk model will spit out like a, an ideal position size based on my risk reward, volatility, liquidity, these things. So, I mean, a lot of it's planned out. Um, obviously, you know, computers don't make every decision. Like I'm ultimately like I'm trading it and I will make a decision. Uh, but like that just gives me a mental framework for risk reward and probability of profit and things like that. And I'll work within those parameters and try to make the best decision I can. So is a lot of the fundamentals related to like relative valuation and, you know, valuing, you know, for example, looking at L1 comps, right. And being like, okay, AVAX is this, therefore I think Matic can be that, you know, like what, like, is that, is that a lot of how you look at fundamentals now? And does that depend on the market cycle? It depends on, it depends on a few few things. So like certain things like you can value intrinsically, right? Like a lot of the DeFi tokens you can value intrinsically, like Sushi and Uni are pretty easy examples of like, you know, they pay you, uh, there's a price to earnings. There's a price to distributed earnings on Sushi because it has like a five basis point dividend. There's a, you know, like theoretically 
Um, uni does not have that yet, but like you can normalize it, right? You can say if sushi's paying you five bit, a five bit dividend and uni does the same thing, how would they look? Um, with cake, you know, you could do the same thing because cake actually has a 20 basis point fee, but like you can normalize that too and say, okay, what if the basis, what if the fee was 30 bips and what if they paid five of that out? So you can kind of like normalize everything and look at it intrinsically um, for certain tokens. And then you can use that intrinsic value and drive like what that should be worth and then look at comps too. And then you can compare the two. Like, how, what do I think it's worth intrinsically? What is it worth trading at comps? How far are those two apart? Um, and you'll see that like, yes, there's definitely some like dislocations. Um, some coins just rip. But for the most part, like the market is doing this. Like, you know, uh, there's a reason that L1s are just ripping, ripping face. And it's because... Uh, you know, Ethereum is like a $200 billion asset right now, probably over that. Um, and, you know, Avalanche was like, a, I think, a $200 or $100 million asset on one, on the first of the year. And now it's over like $4 billion. All right. You know what I mean? And, and you know, it went from like $3 to 60 at one point. Like, that's amazing. Like, obviously, it's come back. But I'm saying... The market is doing that. The market's saying ETH is worth 200 billion. So something that has uh, X number of users or this many number of transactions should be worth 25% of ETH, 20% of ETH. You know, so it's the market is already doing that. And, you know, we try to take a similar approach. So it, I don't think it's, I don't think it's as much nonsense as a lot of people think. Obviously there's some dislocations, but I do think, uh, a lot of the good funds like ours are doing this to get it, to get a sense of value. And so how do you guys think through, um, you know, FDV? So for anybody listening, fully diluted value is basically the value of all of the tokens were in circulation. So you have, you know, the circulating supply of the asset, right? Let's say, you know, let, let's take flow as an example, right? Flow has about one and a half percent of their supply is circulating out of the total to, total supply and flow is trading at a $40 billion valuation if all the supply was circulating. Another example is Serum. Serum is trading at a $60 billion FDV, fully diluted valuation, which is wild, even though the liquid market cap is maybe a couple hundred million dollars. And so when taking kind of a fundamental mm -hmm. approach, how do you think through FDVs and I mean, you know, we, we were chatting about this earlier, you know, Avalanche, for example, unlocked a ton of their supply and ripped this week. Um, yeah, and so like, unlock, it just ripped. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you guys think about that? And like in the yeah. short term, does it not even matter? Okay. That's a great question. Um, so here's how, here's how we think about FTB. In a bear market, generally you look at FTB because everything's probably getting nuked anyway, right? So you kind of want to understand what that, what, what, at what price you're buying that fully diluted network. Um, like what's your entry price? In a bull market or in a market where yeah, I'm not holding it for the long term, it's more of like a catalyst trade or something like that. I look at the circulating supply based on my holding period horizon. So if I'm in Serum, like if I bought Serum at, when it came at like 90 cents on day one, and I know that no supply is hitting the market for uh, a year, because that was what they promised. I think they said like 250 million for the first year or something like that, and then invests linearly for the remaining six years. But the point is, I just, when I'm doing all my calculations and everything, I just look at the circulating supply based on my holding period. So I would just do it for the 250 in this case. Uh, because that's what, yeah, sorry, actually, I'm looking at CoinGecko and it says circulating supply, it, total circulating supply for the first year is 161. 
So I would just use that 161 number because while I'm in the trade or I'm in the investment, that's that's the max number of tokens that can hit. And you know, projects are smart. They know they know funds and other traders are doing this. What they're doing now is they're playing games with the circulating supply. Like there'll be some amount that's like locked, but considered not circulating, but it is circulating. Okay, what I mean is like, it'll be locked. It's it's out there. It's minted already, yeah. But it's locked. So it's circulating, but it's not available. Things like that. And that just kind of impacts liquidity. I don't really think that impacts underlying like value. So, but that's how we think about it. Like, and, and again, like, you know, Cake has had an amazing run. Cake has no supply cap. It's just going to keep coming. So, you know, if, I, if I'm in that trade, what I'm thinking about is like, one, as Cake continues to attract, attract liquidity, I think it has over like 2 billion in it. Are the devs going to realize that like, they need to kind of limit that perpetual inflation? Right. I mean, and, and the thing that you can do, I mean, I know not every fund is, is able to do it because it's on their mandate, but you can also stake cake and, you know, you know, yeah. you can, you know, earn those rewards. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well. And like, you, and look, like, I don't necessarily, I mean, we're in a bull market, so you're obviously a little more lenient. The reason cake has perpetual inflation is because they want to incentivize TVL growth within PancakeSwap. And, uh, and like, I, to a certain extent, I really agree with the fact that like, the second, like if you look at a lot of tokens, I look at like 10 tokens a day. So like if you're looking at all these tokens, the second the reward supply, the emission supply drops drastically, everyone sells, right? And like, it's almost like a step function in the price. Like the price will go up, the, the emission, the emission uh, percentage will drop and the, and the token will nuke. And so by just doing perpetual inflation, getting assets into cake swap. And facilitating, you know, easy trading, low fees. I mean, the APR is still 134% on staking a cake. Yeah. 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 You can, here's some alpha. You can stake stable coins, stable coin, stable coin pool on cake and earn 100% APY. It was 140 last week. There you go. And and I think, you know, and obviously BNB trades like a levered cake. They're obviously very correlated. Uh, you know, everyone, BNB is everyone's favorite, favorite freaking token. Like, you know, as BNB goes up, cake will go up. The API will go up. Um, I'm a fan of cake. I don't care. I'm, I'm a fan of all of them, but like, I, I like cake. It's. I even got a. I even got Katie to be a DeFi power user on. Cake, so, <laughs> so I feel like I've won. I mean, we so, love BSC too. I mean, we've all we've all started to uh, to switch yeah. over to BSC because it's just so much cheaper. It's so much faster. No, definitely, it's it's cheaper. It's faster. It's you know the transactions don't fail. Um, I think for first time users and, and non-DeFi power users, it's way more uh, digestible. It's not as intimidating, um, you know, and you can kind of learn. Like, I, I don't know anyone that that understands all the DeFi analysts I speak to. I speak to probably like a, a lot of the analysts in the space and a lot of the top DeFi analysts, like all of them, all of us are playing with DeFi all day, every single protocol. Uh, on every single chain, you know, we're messing around with it. We're, we're putting money in, we're losing money, we're trading it around, we're seeing how it feels. Uh, and and it matters. It definitely matters. And and I think, you know, with Cake and CDFi, the user access and the, the Binance distribution, the power of Binance is going to lead a lot of people into that, the cycle. So, uh, and that's good for DeFi and it's good for, it's good for the space, I think. And so, you know, what are, you know, I, I guess we already kind of hit on this, but like, 
I'm more interested not in what your day-to-day roles are because it sounds like it's it's researching, it's researching DeFi. I think you're very, very focused on DeFi. It's obviously putting trades on, you know, planning your trades, things like that. But I'm wondering how your roles changed since you first started. Cause when you first started at the at Arca, I'm assuming you weren't, you know, connecting your MetaMask to BSC <laughs> or, you know, looking into, you know, creating an AVAX wallet and connecting that to, you know, MetaMask and things like that. So Pangolin. And, and yeah, exactly. And buying Pangolin on Pangolin because that's the only place where you can actually trade Pangolin. Uh, I, I love that name, Pangolin. It's it's a good uh, name. It's, it's a, a good name. name. It's a great name because it makes, I don't even understand why they would name it. Make, I mean, it has to do something with like crypto Twitter for sure. Well, but actually, yeah. before you even run into that, what are your thoughts on Pangolin? It's only at a $13 million market cap, uh, you know, as, as it relates to circulating supply. And it's down, yeah. you know, from 20 bucks at launch to like six now. Yeah, I mean, you, but like, here's the thing, right? The... As the uh, inflation picked up, I mean, I think it's coming like 256,000 a day, right? In the first week, it ripped out of the gate. Um, but I do think, I, I personally think that in terms of, uh, okay, let me take a step back. When I connected my MetaMask to BSC, it was a very seamless process. You know, like, you know, I, I, you, get, you get the BNB from Binance, send it to, into your MetaMask wallet and you're on cake. It was not as seamless with Avalanche, um, and I think. Well, you have to make a, a website, a wallet on their website before you even start. Yeah, yeah. And you have to bridge your assets, and like you have to like stake, uh, you know, uh, ERC twenty to get a Avalanche version of the same token, and that, for right or for wrong, that does cause some friction, right? And you now you have the, now you have a pegged asset on the other side, and or I'm sorry, a locked asset on the other side, and. And it's all totally necessary at this stage, um, but like it does cause user friction um, and that does reduce stickiness. Um, but what I don't think, what, what I think is like, as long as those, you know, capital is mercenary and with respect to Pangolin, I don't know what the APY is right now on Pangolin farming, like the various pools, but like as long as it's beating whatever the borrow or lend rate is for ETH or for those assets, it's, it's not a bad play, right? You're, you're, you're getting it, you know, you're getting, you're getting a token, which theoretically in five, six years could be worth something. Um, and, you know, it's still a good, it's still a good return on your money. Uh, and, you know, a lot of these pools, like if you think the way I think about yield farming, uh, we don't do it at ARCA, but like the way I think about it is like, if you have two assets that you think are generally range bound uh, with res- relative to each other or mean reverting relative to each other, it's not a bad uh, idea to, to stake them in a pool. Um, and yes, there'll be dislocations like, you know, ETH may go up 50, 60% uh, in a year, but it may come back down and you've made money. You know, that's like uh, volatility harvesting for the pool owners. So I think, you know, and, and this is not, by the way, this, this concept of like why, when you yield farm, when you don't, um, is something I, I spoke with about like Arthur Arthur from uh, Defiant Capital. Um, so like if he's listening, shout out to him because that's a great way to think about when to farm. Are the two assets that you're pooling? How, how are you calculating beta? You're just doing that internally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be a terrible idea uh, with, I, I would do, I personally would do something like, I'm much, much more likely to do something like Bitcoin ETH Right, because like that ratio kind of stays around 
0.025 to 0.04. It, it has historically for, for a while, like, you know, generally 0.025 is a good time to buy ETH. 0.04 is a great time to sell ETH. Um, that's historically been the relationship. So like, if you think it's going to be in that range for a long time and you're, you're pooling your capital and, and you know, traders are going to be in and out of wrapped Bitcoin ETH pools all day long. It's not a bad strategy. I personally don't do it, but like it makes, that's when I think it makes sense. It doesn't make sense when you have like a stable coin and like a Anything. new, and, and a new highly volatile, like, yeah, shit coin that just came out. I mean, but that's why they give you the multiplier for the rewards in those pools, right? To compensate you for the IL because you're going to get cocked on IL there. Yeah, you're um, going to get destroyed. I... So you need like a 40x multiplier. Um, yeah. And yeah, so so we 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 kind of skipped over that last question, which is my fault. I distracted us, but you know, in terms of how your responsibilities have changed, like what were you doing when you first started, and the capital pool was so much smaller, and you were a much smaller team in a smaller firm, and and yeah. you know what you know how has that turned into to this? Because you've kind of become like the it seems like the resident DeFi expert at Arca. Yeah, no, um, not an expert, man. I feel like. God, did you spit? You miss DeFi is moving so fast. I could, I could have like 10 analysts so behind, behind the space. It's just coming so fast and furious. But um, no, I think, okay, when we first started, you know, it was just like me, Katie, and Jeff uh, trying to figure it out, like trying to figure out what moves these tokens, trying to understand like what um, the value drivers are. I spent, I wasted a lot of time uh, in MD equals PQ because remember that was the thing, the Verniski. Uh, the Berniski model, uh, which is a great way to think about it. It's completely wrong, but, uh, <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with that. Look, like, like there is not a the crypto there. assets book somewhere. Yeah. I think we've all read it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, dude, there's not a single valuation model, uh, intrinsic, uh, that will spit out an accurate price prediction for these coins. I'll tell you that right now. Like, but yet I do them every day. And the reason that I do it every day and the reason we do it every day is because we, it just sets a way, a framework for a way to think about it. Um, and so I'm telling you this to say, like, in the beginning, I just spent a lot of time trying to figure out what moves these coins. Like, does this valuation MVP equals PQ make sense? To be honest, like, you know, we, uh, a lot of the coins we were looking at were like 20, launched in 2017 ICOs, 2018 ICOs. So when I started in like 2019 uh, or 2018, they, they were they were coming to mainnet so like when they're coming to mainnet the uh, really sexy trade was like the mainnet launch trade where you just ride it up into the mainnet and then sell it like a week before the mainnet yeah they were and all they by the rumor sell the, rumors, the, the, the news trades yeah, yeah so like you kind of get you kind of like understand like that you know we get some number crunching around that uh, and then obviously like you start to learn that like events and sentiment matter a lot which is why uh, your your uh, tweet volume metric <laughs> is so important. To be honest, I'm not a plug. Like tweet volume is important, and like you know, you saw recently, you saw like Bancor, the tweet volume on Bancor ripped, and of course the token was up, you know, 30, 40 percent. Um, crypto Twitter is a real thing. Crypto Twitter is our Bloomberg, uh, and you know, I spent a lot of time like trying to understand the dynamics of that. Um, and, and it's, it's tricky. Like I spend, you know, when you first start, you just read and read and read and read and read and you try to like understand who, who's important in the space. And then you kind of just learn. And now where, whereas like earlier, I felt like I was like looking for the, the best data sites and looking for like where I would get my news and stuff like that. Now you have all that. 
Uh, you have the tie, you have Masari, you have the block, you have skew, you have Darabit. Um, and you're just trying to understand like relationships. So now it's like when I come in, I'm looking at the lending rates on Av, I'm looking at DeFi rate. Um, I'm looking to see like whether TVL has popped or not or gone down and why that would be like, is the ETH price higher or lower? Um, what are the lending rates on sta- on stables on Av? Um, and what coins are being borrowed heavily. So like, you know, you knew looking at Av that big data protocol was going to be a massive farm because everyone had like borrowed all the Wi-Fi off off. Like the borrow rate for Wi-Fi was like over 100% or like 100% because Wi-Fi was being borrowed, but not to be shorted, but to be farming on big data protocol. So you just kind of get an idea of what to look for. Whereas in the beginning, I, don't, I had no freaking clue like what was driving these coins other than like shilling um, and mainnet launches. And now there is some value, you know, there is, there is some fundamental intrinsic value that you can model and look at. And there's relative value, which I think is more important. Um, and, you know, you're looking at that value relative to total circulating supply and emission rate and trying to come up with a number. So like, it's, it's, it's changed though, dude, like I'm so behind, I can hire like 10 guys and we wouldn't catch up on DeFi. Like the stuff that DeFi is doing, is just like, it's, so it's funny, you know, we have on our team, we have a few guys that are really down the DeFi rabbit hole, like yeah. to the point where they're trading on near and like all this, you know, on like really deep trying to find stuff. And it's funny, like every time, you know, you and I chat, we both have a completely different list of DeFi stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah just because no. it's infinite. Well, dude, like I think a big part of DeFi is um, the like, treasure hunt. It is the treasure hunt. It is the treasure hunt. But a big part of like, it also depends on what you're looking at. Like, so for instance, like people are like, like when they talk about cake, I'm not like, I'm not even, a, we don't even hold cake, but I'm just saying like for cake, there's massive volume, right? The volume is like through the roof. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like you could pull it. It's, it's really ridiculous. It's like doing like well over 750 million a day or was. People are like, well, it's theoretical. It's wash trading, right? It's wash trading because the transactions are cheap and they can ping, ping it back and forth. Um, or do the volume for, for low fees. So it's kind of like Tron's volume or, or you know, like something like that. It's, it's washing. But the truth is a lot of the volume on cake is arbitrage. Um, they're arbitraging uh, the price of ETH to be in uh, Binance BNB or Binance ETH versus regular ETH, uh, you know, selling it, selling it in the stables if it's high and buying it elsewhere if it's low. Um, they're doing a lot of like uh, arbitrage with, the um the mirror assets if the pool token price is lower than it should be they'll buy it and sell it uh on the luna chain so things like that and i think that's where like that's why DeFi is so amazing is because like you know you have these these flash loans which are intended for arbitrage opportunities um and they're also all like they're they're arbitraging opportunities and like bringing them back to equilibrium but they're also used in hacks and that so that same tool that flash loan is making the market more efficient and uh, <laughs> causing rug pulls, right? <laughs> so it's that's the beauty of DeFi is like the the tokens and the tools that you have available are trying to trying to find their home and trying to find a fundamental value. And it's a big, big uh, it, it's a limit. Like the TAM is literally in the hundreds of trillions. So it's only natural that there's a lot of these projects. So, so the TAM is in the hundreds of trillions, but you know, DeFi isn't now. And so, and so, you know, being a, a you guys are a large fund at this point, right? I mean, I think we can, yeah. we can put you in that bucket. You know, how can you actually, can you, can you actually interact 
with a lot of this stuff? I mean, there must be some stuff now where, you know, maybe six months ago or 12 months ago, you'd be able to get in on a trade. Um, but like when you're talking about DeFi, like pancake swap, you know, arbitrage with, you know, Binance or with, you know, trading the asset on Binance directly or, or wherever yeah. else directly. I mean, what is the liquidity like? Can you actually get in on a trade like that? Yeah. So like, so as we've, I mean, this is, a, this is like kind of dovetails to your last question um, regarding how the jobs changed. The point is, is that when you first start and you have very low AUM and you just have a dollar and a dream, you can take a lot of positions in quote unquote shit coins, right? Because you don't have a lot of money and uh, it's like a, everything is based on percentages. So if I have a $5 million fund and I want to put 10% into pancake swap, that's not that big of a deal. Like I, that's a core position now, right? <laughs> the 10% position in cake. But like, as you get, as you get bigger, um, like a $500,000 position is, is not, is like, you know, nothing. It's uh 25 bips. Right. So it's, uh, it's tough like to, to think about like, position sizing in that regard. So what I'm trying to say is, as you grow, the percentages get harder. It gets harder to trade these coins, um, especially the illiquid ones. And even now with our size, DeFi, a lot of DeFi tokens are not liquid. They're not liquid because they're either staked, like a lot of all, like 35% of all is staked on the platform. Uh, a lot of Sushi is staked in XSushi. You know, Compound, a lot, of it's, a lot of it's being staked too. So the point is, these are still illiquid coins for the most part. Uh, you can trade them, you can get out of them, but they are liquid. So that has to be factored into your position sizing. We own a lot of Bob, we own a lot of Sushi, we own a lot of Uni, um, and you know we own some Comp. And like I, these are like my ride or dies. I'm not looking to trade them. Like if they get out of control, yeah, we take prints. Um, like you know, uh, like when Av just decided to go berserk and went to like 550, and when I think B and B went to 350, do you trim the edges? Yeah, you trim the edges, but like. I really believe in these tokens. And if you look at uh, a point you raised earlier, you look at the top 10 in 2017, it looked nothing like the top 10 now, right? And I think if you look at the top 10 at the end of 2021, it's not gonna look like anything it does now. Like I think until um, you see numerous DeFi tokens in the top 10, like I think Uni's already there on a fully diluted basis, but like, you know, if you, until you see like of uh, um, sushi's a little smaller, uh, but in, until you see like Av, Sushi, uh, Uniswap in the top 10, I, I still think DeFi is undervalued. Um, like I, I totally understand like Litecoin um, as a trading vehicle. I understand Cardano as a trading vehicle. Like these are big liquid tokens that bigger funds can take positions in for market beta. So I get it. I, I get it at, that they're trading, that they're beta vehicles. Um, but in terms of like underlying fundamental value, which is what Arca does, uh, I don't understand it. Um, what about like, I'm looking now on, on, you know, the top 20 assets. I mean, Stellar is 12, uh, NEM. I've never heard of a fund take. I mean, I don't know, maybe you guys have a position. I've never heard of a fund taking a position in NEM, you know, who's, I mean, now Terra is 19. Wow. That's impressive. But like, I mean, EOS is still 24th. Tron is still 26th. You know, I mean, you go down this list. I mean, Neo is still 34th. When's the last time anybody talked about Neo? I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty unbelievable to me. I mean, you know, Dash at 42. I mean, why, why are these assets still so highly valued? Who's buying them? Yeah, you know, I think it's a few things. I think, I think one is that 
it, it kind of goes back to my uh, BSV example, BCH BSV example. Like, yeah, that's the total supply. But one, that's not like if you did it on circulating supply or liquid market cap, these tokens would be much lower because no one's claiming them. No one even knows they have them. What's the what's the guy's name from from XLM? Jed McCabe? Not Jed McCabe. Jed McCabe. Uh, yeah. Who, who, I mean, he's gone to EOS. He's gone. Uh, XRP, and, obviously. XRP. Is this the same guy, Jed McCabe? Jed, Jed was a co-founder of, of XRP, yeah. Um, or Ripple. Uh, no, what is his name? I, Dan, oh God. Oh, Dan Larimer? Yes, yes. Thank you, thank you. I, I try not to remember uh, these guys' names because they're not <laughs> doing But like, basically, look, like Dan Larimer has a boatload of XLM. Uh, he also has a boatload of Ripple. He also has a boatload of EOS. And like, I bet you a lot of his supply hasn't even been touched. And, you know, so so these numbers that we're seeing, they're based on fully diluted, uh, fully diluted supply um, that hasn't touched the market. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think to your point, a lot of the new DeFi stuff is a lot more fair launch than the 2017 ICOs. Yeah, were. yeah dude. Yeah, I mean, like, like it's, you know, it... it, it I understand, like, I get why funds like to trade Cardano. I, I mean, I don't, we don't, but like, I understand why it is a $35 billion asset. If you need to put on for a lot of the funds now that are like 500 million, if you need to get on sides quickly, you can short uh, 50 million of Cardano. Uh, I mean, no problem. You can short it uh, via futures. Um, and all of a sudden, like you've you've reduced your market exposure by 10%, actually more because of the higher beta that Cardano has. So I understand ADA. Uh, I understand trading ADA. I don't understand the value of ADA, but I understand trading ADA. Um, and I think that's what you're seeing with a lot of these tokens. Like the other ones you named, uh, NEM, I've literally never heard of it, which is embarrassing. Um, New economy movement. I mean, that's been around forever. Yeah. Uh, Theta is another one that I don't get. Like it just goes up. And I don't know why. I think uh, a lot of these assets are, pre- and we've had this conversation before, um, yeah. you know, are predominantly retail driven, right? It's it's kind of interesting in crypto where, and, and we've talked about this, you kind of have, you know, retail has discovered a lot of assets that institutions have not for better or for worse. And, you know, not saying one is better than the other, but, you know, we've talked about the fact that if you go on YouTube and you type in crypto, Half the videos are Cardano, right? Yeah. Theta is really big on YouTube. Doge is giant on on um, um, not Vine. What's the TikTok, right? Um, a lot of these things are big on TikTok, right? XRP is giant among retail investors, and it's it's kind of quite interesting. And and you know you see a lot of times, you know I forgot who who it was. They weren't pointing fingers, but they were like, "Why is Cardano worth thirty five billion dollars?" And uh, I think it was Novogratz this morning. He's like, "I've traded everything." But I don't understand Cardano. I understand why it's at $35 billion and no one really gave a straight answer. Uh, yeah. And and that's like, look, look, dude, like, honestly, I, a lot of this space is based on like, so for me personally, when I'm, when I'm in a trade or I'm investing in something, like I really have to believe in it. And I really have to like, because like a lot of the times when you put something on, it's going to go down 25%. And you have to be willing to buy more. And that that's down 25% move, that's just market beta. Like nothing's even wrong. 
Um, or maybe and so when you're positioning, when you're identifying yeah. an asset, how much do you put in on that first allocation versus how much are you writing up for, you know, it, it depends later? on, it depends on like time horizon. Um, if I'm in the trade like early and I have time and it drops, yeah, you got to buy it. But like, if I'm doing it for like a week and it depends on my risk reward, my risk reward profile already wasn't good and I'm in it a week and it falls, I'll just kind of ride it. Uh, and if it hits my stop loss, I'll cut it. But the point is, is that like, I, you, I'm just trying to say like, if I could believe in the value proposition of Dogecoin or like a fundamental trade on Dogecoin, I would put the money on in it, but I can't. And I wish, and, and honestly, like maybe, maybe you could say like objectively, that's the wrong decision. So similar with data, like I don't understand data. I'm sure it's a great token, but like if I understood it and I just sat in it, I'd be up. What would I be up? I'm just looking here. a lot, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I'd probably up more than I'm up on like off, and more than I'm up on uni, and more than I'm up on sushi. Yeah, dude, this thing was. Oh my god! It's it's rip. It, what it what it's like a it's like a, a competitor to uh, Twitch or something. Is that what it is? Yeah, I, I guess is that the meme? It's up twenty. It's up like I mean, it's not up that much relative. It's six x six x from one one. I mean, the big but, trades this year are BNB, Avax, Solana. It's all the yeah, the L ones. Yeah, yeah, dude. And we were on that you know March perp for the Solana thing. Like we were on that one. Tra that trade that was a good trade. Um, uh, the Avax one, I did not maximize value on that. I sold, I sold a, like probably too early. I sold around like 20 bucks, but I mean, I was comfortable there. You know what I mean? Like it's all about risk reward and comfort. Like if you told me on January 1st, you're going to buy something at 350 and sell it at 20, three weeks later, I would do that all day, every day, forever. Um, I mean, how hard is it not to FOMO? Because in this space, you just yeah. see, I mean, like Theta as an example, right? I mean, Theta, Theta, Theta ripped. I mean, Chili's has been ripping. I mean, there's every day something else. I mean, I, you know, I don't even know. I mean, like, let me see what's ripped today. I don't even know what's ripping today. Uh, Theta Fuel is up 65% today. Uh, <laughs> Theta Token's up 19. Helium is up 36%. Like, you know, I haven't heard about helium in a very long time. I mean, that's kind it's of a comeback. Bag. It's a multi-coin bag, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think I think helium has a uh, pretty solid uh, retail base uh, because of like the node. Like you could run there. The mesh network, whatever. The mesh network and you get like rewards. So like you pay whatever you pay for like the, the external hardware. And then through that you mine and you earn money mining. Um, so I think that's why it's big with retail, but no, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. Like, here's what, how I think about crypto sometimes or, or my job, digital assets. It right now in this bull market, it's like a, it's like musical chairs or a merry-go-round. Like everything gets turned. What hasn't ripped, you should buy that because that's going to get its turn. It's going to go up. Um, and yeah, you're seeing ridiculous prices in the market. You're seeing ridiculous things happen, but I think over time, the market will, will mature, the best assets uh, will, will create value. And yeah, like I'm confident, I really am confident that you're going to see a different top 10 at the end of the year. Um, and when we go through some type of a correction or some type of, uh, you know, maybe not as deep of a bear market as we've got into the past, because there's a lot more fundamental value in the space. Now there's a lot more substance, but when, when the smoke clears, 
uh, I think you'll see the the stronger, more value accretive tokens at the top. And for us, that's uh, ex, uh, yield, yield producing uh, flows. And what I mean by that is like exogenous flows, not like just rewards, but um, tokens that produce cash flows exogenously. So like if if you're holding it, you get ETH. If you're if you're holding like a non-opto or like you're holding off, you earn fees and ETH, um, things like that. Or you earn balancer pool tokens, or you earn um, trading fees via the platform, which are converted to stable coins. In other words, like you're earning external cash flows and that adds value to the system. And so I think you kind of address this with the relative valuation thing, but like how hard is it to buy when everything's going up? And how do you decide where to put your money? And, and when do you just decide, like, it's, I got to take some cash? Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. It, it comes down to like portfolio construction. So like, let's say I want to be max uh, long. Uh, remember, we don't use leverage. So if I want to be 100% invested, um, then I will have to buy puts um, to limit my downside exposure. So I will spend... Uh, a few you do that on everything you're trading though? Can you buy puts and everything? No, so you have to use proxies, right? So like for us, we 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 slant heavy towards DeFi. Um, like, and what I mean by that is like probably like 30, 40% of the book, depending on the range, is in DeFi tokens. So DeFi tokens have a very strong correlation to ETH. Um, so you'll buy ETH puts, even though they're extremely expensive. Uh, the thought process being like, if... If ETH goes, if ETH trades well or if DeFi trades well, these coins have such high beta that I will make multiples on the cost of insurance via the profits from uh, the, the up move. And obviously, I'll, I'll take profits like when things get out of control, like, you know, uh, at 550, BNP at 350, um, I will take profits. Uh, I will not like totally cut it unless it gets insane. But um, I, I will I will like reduce exposure and take cash. Um, and then that cash obviously is used to buy back lower or buy more puts the next day or the, the next month. Um, you know, for Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin is trading so well right now that you don't worry about it too much. Um, you know, you kind of just like it's not set it and forget it. Obviously, if it went to 70,000 tomorrow, I would trim. But it's, you know, the narrative so strong, um, you know, there's very big players in the market that are accumulating right now and, and it's fine. And also like Bitcoin doesn't really hedge your book because we try to keep a relatively low Bitcoin adjusted uh, beta uh, to our portfolio. So we try to look for coins that are not as correlated to Bitcoin. Yeah. And do you which, think during a, during a, the next bear market, which inevitably will come, whether that's in two months or in six months or in a year or whenever it is, do you think assets will be, uh, as correlated to Bitcoin as they were in 2017. Obviously, every asset was correlated to Bitcoin, but was underperforming for the most part in in 2018, uh, 2019. But you know, how, how do you think that through, or do you think Bitcoin has kind of become a separate asset class, and you could see a, a really sharp bear market in in alts, and and Bitcoin is more just stagnant? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, we we talk, I talk to other, I talk to Jeff about this all the time. Like, what does a bear market look like? Um, and we think that Bitcoin has kind of transcended, has transcended the space in the sense that like it's, it's, it's viewed as so many different things by so many different types of people. So like, obviously it's an inflation hedge, uh, it's 
uh, it's an alternative to gold. It's uh, a growth asset. You know what I mean? There's so many different narratives. It has a narrative flex to it. So the point is, is that when when and it, when we go into the next bear, I think that D, that Bitcoin holds its price a lot better than it's held it in the past. Uh, now, does that mean it doesn't have a 40, 50 percent drop? No, that just means I don't think you're ever going to see a, a ten thousand dollar Bitcoin again. Or even, I mean, I'll go. I don't think you're going to see a twenty thousand dollar Bitcoin again. You'll see a bit from wherever we are. I don't think you'll see a bit a uh, fifty, sixty percent drop from from here. Uh, I mean, I, 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 thank you. I mean, there's so many buyers, and there's so many people that if they're not fully allocated, they're ready to allocate. So I'm I'm in the same boat. I mean, I think. No, I was say I look. I think certainly there's going to be a correction in some of this you know, DeFi stuff and some of this new movement. Cause when an asset like Avalanche goes up 20 X in like a few weeks, it's, it's bound to correct right now. It will correct heavy, but you know, with, with Bitcoin, I just, I just don't see that happening, especially, I mean, you're having the same conversations that, w- that we have with pensions and endowments and MFOs. Um, I mean, th- this is real capital, right? I mean, you know, you know, p- endowments are not, you know, buying serum right now and they're not buying <laughs> Pangolin, um, but they are buying Bitcoin. Yeah, and and the, another interesting thing to note there is that they're buying they're buying Bitcoin. These are longer term holders, like you know, Mass Mutual made a hundred million dollar Bitcoin purchase. Yeah, they're not selling anytime soon. They're, they're not trying to flip it for like a 40 percent or even two three x gain. Like it is truly viewed as a hedge. Um, you, you actually worry more about the hedge funds getting into the space that that if they're having a bad year, which they may be. And their their biggest trade, or they have like a, they probably have like a one percent or fifty bit point position in Bitcoin, and that thing is like five six x, and that's a nice PL generator. They will sell Bitcoin to take the profit, and make the make the books look better, right? Um, but you don't worry about the other types of holders because these are just longer term holders. Um, and with these types of holders, the price Bitcoin actually gets safer the higher the price goes. It becomes investable above a trillion dollars. A lot of these uh, pension funds and institutional capital allocators, they can't buy an asset which has a sub-trillion dollar market cap. It's like it's in the mandate. Um, so the, the risk level actually decreases as stupid as it sounds, the higher the price goes. Um, and the higher the price goes, it kind of resets everyone's mental model, um, which is why Bitcoin is so hard to trade because everyone has like, you, you can sell the dream on Bitcoin to anyone. Because it's truly like the floor is the is the the, the floor is zero and the ceiling is infinity, uh, and everyone is subject to the same whims. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's. But to answer your question, like to shortly, yeah, I think the bear market will look different for Bitcoin than it will for a lot of these other tokens, especially these like some of these NFT projects. Um, and yeah, like you're trading at forty billion fully diluted today. Uh, you know, you're this probably is flow we're talking about. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm just saying, you know. Uh, what about wax? Wax totally ripped the other day too. What is wax? That God. Jeff oh, Jeff. wax. So I was I was on a live stream and I was talking and I was like saying I think wax is probably going to move. Go go pull up a wax chart right now. Oh my oh, goodness! Oh, I I didn't look today, but man, it's like tripled in like a week. Uh, God damn it. I mean, it's still way down from, you know, go to the, go, go pull up the one month chart. A month ago, wax was at, you know, wax P like, or wax, wax P. P yeah. Wax P <laughs> it was at five cents a month ago. It's at 17 today. 
Um, oh God, oh I think gosh. it went up 40% yesterday or 50, 50, I think it was up over 50% at some point yesterday. Seven um, day chart, uh, 70%. Yeah, dude. I'm telling you, man, like, like I love the space. You just got to realize everything gets turned on the merry-go-round and your job sometimes is to just kind of assess when, like what's musical chairs, what's the trend, what's the narrative and when's the, when, when is it a good time to get onto the ride and when's the best time to get off the ride? And generally, um, you should be getting off the ride when all of crypto Twitter is showing it. Um, and generally, you should be getting on the ride when all of crypto Twitter says it's a, it's, it's a scam project. You know, like you kind of got to be smart enough to trade against like the herd sometimes. So it's tough. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to go, go too, too long and take up all your time, but I do have a few additional questions that I think are, are, are fun. Um, Let's finish up with DeFi and L1s. And I have another question, but you know, the, the first thing is, you know, talking about merry-go-round, let's talk about DeFi as a merry-go-round. How do you even go about, or or it doesn't need to be DeFi, it can be anything. How do you identify that new asset, which hasn't pumped yet? Is it just a matter of looking at what on the one month chart hasn't moved and is in a similar category? Like, how do you how do you identify that? And it's a really hard question, I think. No, no. I mean, it's, it's smart. Like, you know, I'll give you an example. Like we traded, uh, we were, we knew that we, th- we thought that non ETH uh, layer ones and their AMMs would be a thing because of all the hate that ETH was getting because of the transaction fees. And we noticed that like, uh, like the cake was taking off for BNB on the BSC chain, obviously we traded Avalanche Penguin. And then when Matic, reprinted to Polygon and started quick swap, you knew because of like this trend that that was going to be a thing. You knew immediately it was going to be a thing. Uh, so you kind of like can get some size there quickly. If you can, obviously it's getting harder to get size, you know, $2 million position is like a point. It's hard to get that kind of size. And like, if I put 2 million in, if it goes up hundred percent, I've made one point for the fund. Uh, is that risk worth it to trade an elite, uh, an illiquid shitcoin for 1%? Um, probably not. But the point is, is like you identify these things, you identify the trends. Um, you know, like when another easy example is like Av went ham and went to 550, but comp hadn't really moved. That was an easy rotation trade. Um, you know, like there are natural competitors. Um, I have my preference, but like if Av goes up 50, 60% a week and comp hasn't really moved, you, get, you should be buying should be buying up, uh, or uh, sorry, you should be buying comp. Um, you know, synthetics and mirror is another one. Like synthetics is was mooning. You should be buying mirror, and I think that's you know that's the merry-go-round. That's the rotation play. That's the game we play. I think ultimately, like I mean, it's no different in stocks either, right? Like that happens all the time. Like that happens all the time. Like sector rotations, um, and you know, people say like, oh, when shit coins are pumping, that's when the market's frothy. Uh, you know, shit coins being like sub sub hundred million or sub fifty million market caps. That that's no different in the equity market either. The end of the rally is when the trashiest stuff is ripping the hardest, um, and that happens all the time in our space, and it happens in equities too. So there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities there, and you just have to understand that. And so, you know, you alluded to this earlier, so, you know, you don't need to go in too much depth, but, you know, what are your thoughts on the different L1s? Obviously, as a rotational play, it made sense, but what are your thoughts long-term and and what are your thoughts on, you know, obviously a lot of people are fed up with ETH, you know, you know, especially smaller traders don't want to put $500 trades on Uniswap because, you know, your gas fees are going to be 15%. Uh, you know, you got to, your hurdle rate is ridiculous with gas fees. And so, 
you know, in the long in the long run, I mean, do you think that gas fees have hurt ETH and ETH is going to lose? You know, you know, maybe ETH grows, right? And maybe the pie grows, but ETH, do you think ETH is going to become a smaller piece of the pie as as you know, the kind of the L1 pie grows? It's a great question. In my opinion, ETH will always be the like the layer one, uh, the layer one, the king layer one. But your question is very good, and it asks of relative growth of the other assets against ETH. And I mean, obviously, you're already seeing like Polkadot, which I think is like a what is Polkadot right now? Like a fifty billion, or I, mean, I actually have to check this. What is that? Dot is uh, 33, yeah, 34. So 34 billion. Um, and so obviously, Dot has grown much faster than this cycle. Do I expect that to continue? I don't know. I, for me personally, I think as soon as ETH, and I know it's a while away, as soon as ETH in two, three years scales, moves to proof of stake, they figured out all the sharding and all like the other, everything else they have to do to make sure ETH works, I do think that ETH just maintains that that value capture and the dev share and the, and the TBL. I think, I mean, I, I do think the what's going on now with the other layer ones and like the phantoms and Maddox as like L1s as the new L2 trade, I do think that's that's a trend. Uh, but for the most part, like DOT has, that's not a small chain anymore. You know, we're going to see how that thing plays out. Avalanche has gone 10x in a month. Let's see how that plays out. Let's see if Pangolin can cause people to stay. I still think it's a lot of um, hype in a lot of the chains. I do like the TBL capture that these chains are using. I do like the cross integration. Like So for instance, I like the Solana, Serum, Oxygen, Radium. Like I like that whole trade where the, the projects are kind of like teaming up or integrating fully with each other so that users come into the ecosystem and stay. I like that whole thing, which is why I think BNB and Cake have value. Um, but we'll see when the pr prices like drop a little and the APYs drop a little, we'll see what chains stay, um, have staying power. But I always think ETH will have staying power. Um, it's the first one, it's the next one. My yeah, and I think I think to your point, um, you know, I'm looking now on DAP radar. I mean, if you look at Pancake Swap, obviously it's grown so much. It's only got fifty seven point seven nine thousand active users. I mean, that's yeah. you know, if you look at you know, I mean, I think you know, to you know, we're so far down this rabbit hole, both of us, right? But I think if you take a step back and you think of the rest of the world and what the rest of the world's allocating to, right? When I think when an endowment inevitably allocates to Bitcoin. You know, the next question is going to be, so what's next? And I don't think they go down Binance Smart Chain, right, and say, let's buy BNB. You know, I don't think they're looking at, you know, the fact that Auto Farm has 7,000 users and ApeSwap has 4.17 thousand users, right? I think they look at ETH as being that, you know, kind of secondary asset and their, you know, potentially even their exposure to this DeFi boom. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree with that, dude. I, I think no one is investing in no like serious. I mean, I don't even know that institutions are investing in ETH uh, yet, but I just think that ETH will always have, I'm not a maxi. I, I invest in everything. I trade everything. Um, Bitcoin and ETH to me are still by far and away, by far and away, the two most important assets in the space. And I'm a huge DeFi guy. Uh, and I'm telling you right now, I, I don't ever think Bitcoin and ETH will be displaced. 
as the number one and number two most important assets in the space, um, regardless of everything that's going on in the other L1 chains. And there is a lot of stuff going on and that's fine. Like there can be other stuff. Like it, to me, it's still gonna be Bitcoin and ETH uh, with the most staying power. And and yeah, so a couple a couple other questions. I know I got a bunch written down, but let's let's no, let's rip fine. through them. I, I'm giving long answers because I just like I miss you, man. I haven't seen you in a week, so I'm just talking a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, my my next question. This wasn't actually on my list, uh, but it's something that you and I chat about all the time, which is the grayscale trade. Um, yeah. And so. What are your thoughts on what's going on? Obviously, with you know GBTC ETH trading at a discount. Obviously, Barry came out today and said, you know, DCG is going to buy back two fifty million. You know, what are your thoughts from talking to other funds? Do you think anybody's going to blow up on that trade? Um, do you think Barry is saving people? And what kind of tail risk do you think any of that this has? I mean, I think there's a few things. The first one is that there's a lot of ways to buy like Barry goes out and they have very they have a very good trading desk if Barry buys uh GBTC out of the market he can short bitcoin futures against that and collect premium on basically a, a an arbitrage trade right um that's one so he's not just doing it like he he's doing it to help the brand and to help the asset and to help the investment but he's also making money if if he brings GBTC back to back to par or even at a premium, that entices more people to enter the trade. That's good for Barry. So Barry is making money uh, via buying GBTC, shorting futures, collecting funding. He's making money if he brings it back to par or a premium because people are putting money in and he gets the admin fee. He's also making money if um, he saves BlockFi, however he's saving them. So like by by making sure they don't blow up, right? So I mean, do you think BlockFi is not is not covered there? I mean, what what are your what are your thoughts on BlockFi? And it, given that that DCG has Genesis and they're not investors in BlockFi, what incentive does Barry actually have to save BlockFi? Brand equity, right? Like this is your flagship asset. It's right. If you blow asset. up the biggest, yeah. yeah. Like like I mean, and, and look, dude, Barry Barry Schilbert did not. Sorry, Barry Silver did not. I did not mean that. Barry Silver did not get to where he is today, being a billionaire by by being stupid. Uh, he knows that a Bitcoin ETF is on the horizon. He knows that uh, he has an exit plan. Like you don't you don't achieve his level of success without looking two, three, four, five years down the line and understanding what the landscape looks like. There. They're both helping the product as well as helping themselves, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, they're also getting Bitcoin, even if they're not, you know, even if they're not, um, you know, shorting, uh, shorting Bitcoin to do the trade. I mean, I don't know if you saw, they just posted like 12 job postings for ETF related jobs in Stanford, Connecticut. Yeah, and they maybe they maybe they know that an e, that they're going to get approved as an ETF, and they're just collecting that additional yield on Bitcoin before they get approved. There's a lot of ways to skin that cat. It trades yeah. like a very odd asset. It's not a normal thing. I, I mean, I, like I love and hate crypto Twitter. I really love and hate crypto Twitter. Like you see a lot of terrible takes on GBTC, and I understand it. Like we, I've traded these assets. Like we were in the ETHU trade. Thank God we got out. Um, you know. Like it's not there. I, I don't think there's a free lunch there anymore. Um, and I kind of think it lasted that, a long time. It lasted a long time, but you can tell that like the second that it got too big, it's it's a funnel issue, right? Like 
getting out the way it trades. I'm not, I'm not sure if your, your listeners know, but like it trades via pink sheets. And what that means is if like, if, when, if I want to get out or if I want to sell, I submit an offer and I, I see a, I see a bid for, let's say a hundred shares uh, at X price. I can hit that bid, but the way I hit that bid is I just submit my offer at the same price. The market maker in sitting in the middle, clearing the pink sheets, he may not clear my 100 shares. So if there was a bid at 100 shares and I submitted an offer at 100 shares at the same price, only 50 of those shares may get taken. So what happens is, and that happens, right? Like 50 of the shares get, uh, I get out of 50 of the shares and then the bid moves uh, 50 cents lower. And then I and then I re-hit the bid 50 cents lower for the same number of shares and only half get filled. And because of the way that it trades, it just makes it so that you get these dislocations both ways. There's a dislocation to the discount if people want out. And conversely, there's a dislocation to the upside resulting in a premium if people want in. It's just the way it trades via the pink sheets. Um, it's pretty opaque. You know, OTC trading is opaque in general. And it's a function of that. So I think that's what you're seeing. Um, I think the ETHE thing is kind of a sign that like, really it's just funds in the trade, like institutions are not buying ETHE. Um, uh, and I, I'm curious how the Litecoin one's gonna work out. You know, crypto Twitter freaks out about like the 20,000% premium uh, when there's like oh, two shares. Because there's, there's no shares outstanding. There's yeah, zero. They don't know that. They don't know that. And they're like, oh, you can arm this so easily. Just like, you know, long short. It's just like, nah, bro. It's, it's you gotta wait. It's a year, maybe six months. There's a ton of people ahead of you. Market maker may fill your OTC bids. It's tough. It's, it's 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 making money in crypto is not easy. People think it is. I mean, right now it probably is, but like it's not as easy as people think. So and so on the on the you know kind of my last question for my final question on the the topic of you know securities. Um, what are your thoughts on the rise of crypto related stocks uh, like Marathon Patent Group? Um, you know, um, you know, micro strategy even, but I'm, I'm talking more like, you know, Canaan and mining companies and things like that. Uh, and also, you know, the launch of, you know, the Coinbase IPO. I mean, do you think these things are bubbles? Do you think they're trading at ridiculous valuations? Do you think there's opportunities here? I mean, you know, micro strategy corrected 50%. So, uh, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. I think that, um, it's, it, it's ironic that in people always make fun of, uh, of, crypto but like the real world has a lot of similarities right we were just i mean gamestop hit an all-time high today and then corrected 40 percent in 25 minutes yeah but i'm saying like people there's a lot of similarities like we were just talking about shit coins ripping for no reason or ripping on the merry-go-round and i think you're seeing a lot of that in these assets like if you look at the valuations of like riot which is a i think it's a, a mining company um, I'm not overly familiar with what Marathon Patent does. I know. Mining. Yeah, mining. Okay. I just think, you know, it's a levered Bitcoin play. It's exposure to the space. And I, on, a, on a fundamental basis, yeah, like are these, are, these, are these mining companies, even if everything went right and the Bitcoin price kept going up, could they mine at the valuation? I don't know what mining uh, multiples are. But like, could they mine as much Bitcoin as they're trading at on a valuation basis? I highly doubt it, um, right? Um, but I think it's people want exposure to the space and this is a levered play. And, you know, we, we don't just trade uh, digital assets. We do look at some equities. So they're interesting plays for us too. 
Um, and I think that Bitcoin, I think that Coinbase will be the easiest plug and play uh, IPO for a lot of the brokerage houses, a lot of the institutional money managers. Uh, if Coinbase comes at $100 billion, that's not a small asset. You can, you, you, you can be an institutional allocator and invest in that stock. Um, and that's going to be a huge boom for, I don't know that it's a huge boom for Bitcoin because I don't think Bitcoin needs Coinbase, uh, but I do think Coinbase needs Bitcoin. And so I think it's a much bigger, Bitcoin is a much bigger boom to Coinbase than Coinbase is to Bitcoin. And so I think if Bitcoin does well, I know I'm like talking a lot, but I'm saying if Bitcoin does well, I think that people will flock to the Coinbase stock as a proxy. And I think Coinbase stock is going to do well because I think Bitcoin is going to do well. And so my, my final question is, you know, what is the shittiest shit coin that you see people buying now? Uh, or today, I should ask today because it changes every single day. Yeah, so shittiest shitcoin. A lot of people are are in uh, gourmet galaxy gum, um, <laughs> which is just I'm not. I don't hold any of these. I don't trade any of these. Arkin doesn't hold any of these. We would never put money into these. Please invest carefully. This is not financial advice. But uh, yeah, so gourmet here. Let me look at my shitcoin list on CoinGecko. Um, is 77, okay. 78 cents last last Thursday, went up to 206, 207 today, and then dropped 13%. 13%. So Gourmet Galaxy is one, good gum. MXX is like the of of BXC. Theoretically, that's the meme, is the of of BSC. So MXX is a shitcoin. Freeway token, I don't even know what that shitcoin does. It must have something to do with freeways, so there's definitely utility value there. Um like god dude there's so much garbage pi defi like i just know the ticker is called pi because P defi pi uh is a shit coin that i've been shilled recently that i can't what, what was the one that we were talking about the other day thug thug something what what was oh that one god. called thug finance dude come on <laughs> yeah i didn't i passed on that i passed on all these but dude one 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 that i think is very interesting is uh i mean i like is be the b20 token like i just think that's a great proxy for like nft art uh, because of the Beeple token. I, I don't know if people are interested in that. I think the Beeple auction on Christie's is like at like 13 million for one for one uh, of his paintings. And I think the B20 token represents 20 of his paintings. Like the, the, just a really quick background, like B20 is like there's 10 million tokens and the token is currently trading around 20 bucks. So, and the, what the token represents is fractionalized ownership in Beeple's um artwork i think there's like 30 total tokens in the set and beeple has 20 of them or 20 of them 20 of those 30 are beeple's works so if you figure like that one goes for 12 million uh uh if you let's think that his first piece will go for 12 million and there's 20 or 30 pieces in there and the set trades at a premium to the individual 200 million theoretically for a fully diluted valuation like it it sounds okay. Like, you know, and I'm getting there, like saying 20, 20 a token times 10 million tokens. So 200 million tokens or 200 million is the value of the, the set uh, that you own a fractionalized interest in by holding the B20 token. So like, you know, theoretically that makes sense. If, if you believe that NFT art is, is here to stay. And I mean, you know, 12 and a half million dollar bid is not a joke. So there's been stupider shit out there um, than that. Traphouse.vip was what I was thinking about with the thugs finance. <laughs> I go through this fundamental analysis on B20 and why it makes sense because there's a proxy and there's a price in the market and you're on thugs finance. So that's nice to know, brother. <laughs> nice to know. <laughs>
All right. Well, thank thank you so so much for taking taking so much time. I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, I'll obviously drop it in the description, but where can people find out about you? Uh, learn more about Arca that are interested in learning more about the fund. Yeah. So uh, www.ar.ca. Uh, ar.ca is the is the fund for or is the fund website, and then uh, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Hassan Basiri. H a s s a n b a s s i r i. I I'm a lurker. Uh, so if you just like slide in my DMs, I'll hit you back. I don't tweet too much though. Awesome. Th- thanks for the time, Hassan. Thanks, Appreciate Bob. it. Thanks.